Hello and welcome to the series finale of this run of Jardu COVID-19 community podcasts. Yes, this is episode eight in a series of eight, where we bring you insights, stories and experiences from those at the forefront of digital services, particularly in local government during the COVID-19 pandemic. The podcast medium has proven to be quite a good way of sharing the great work along with challenges being faced within the Jardu community. We intend to broaden the subject matter covered through the channel, and when we have specific topics, such as COVID-19, we'll do specific series. Whether there will be a series two with a COVID-19 focus will largely depend on what happens next. With that in mind, today we feature the Local Government Association of Queensland, or LGAQ, the not-for-profit association serving the state's local authorities and which manages many of their websites. Jardu is a market-leading CMS and e-forms provider to Queensland councils, and today we talk to Brett Johnson, who is the Digital Member Services Manager, about COVID-19 being a catalyst for channel shift amongst many of its members. I'll begin by asking for an overview of how Queensland has fared and whether the primary challenge is now an economical one. It's probably fair to say that Australia and indeed the Australia Pacific region more broadly uh, handled the coronavirus epidemic extremely well in its early stages. And we'd seemingly reduced community transmission to a point where all known cases were persons either placed in quarantine and new cases were between one to seven in most parts of the country. So um, what happened next was unfortunately um, as we started to return to pre-COVID arrangements, uh, we experienced a second wave which uh, particularly impacted Victoria, New South Wales and also the Australian Capital Territory which have now been declared COVID-19 hotspots. Uh, this has probably really changed the way in which COVID-19 is being managed and handled across the country um, and really reinforces the fact that Australia is a federation and the states have power to control their territories uh, in relation to quarantining and border control. So uh, Queensland um, has what we have called a hard border. So uh, we're closed to Victoria, New South Wales and the ACT at the moment. Uh, Western Australia is also operating similarly where they've got a hard border closure and it's designated to COVID-19 hotspots here in this state. Um, so what that means is Queensland residents from these areas, if they've been to, say, Victoria, New South Wales and ACT, uh, they can come back, but they need to apply for a permit. Uh, places like Victoria, New South Wales that have had high community transmission in certain, uh, in recent weeks and recent months mean that they uh, very much have had to uh, look at the way in which they enforce lockdowns as they were earlier on in the year. Um, but right now, uh, we're not seeing that community transmission in Queensland and that's partly because um, we ha are seeing the arrivals from overseas and they're being managed in a way where um, the intake of those particular people uh, are subject to quarantining arrangements which um, the government has has insisted upon. I suppose getting back to your other question, it's not primarily economical. We're still having to, I suppose, deal with uh, the fact that community transmission is still large in particular jurisdictions like Victoria, New South Wales. Um, and there are people that naturally want to come to Queensland, whether that's for holidays, whether that's for uh, business or, or for family reasons. Uh, we now have to manage that. Um, but from an economic perspective, I suppose, Queensland is now grappling with the need to quell the tension surrounding opening parts of the economy against the fact that the virus is still highly communicable. Um, some industries have been heavily affected, tourism, hospitality, arts and culture, entertainment industries. 
it's managing that in a way where um, you can keep Queenslanders safe, uh, but also not bring the economy to to collapse as well. Great, that's a that's a fantastic overview. Thank you, thank you very much. And uh, I guess considering the the topic of the uh, the podcast, it's the inevitable question really is how important well council websites have been and digital services amidst all of this. Uh, being such a decentralised state, uh, for many many communities, uh, COVID nineteen hasn't had the impact um, like what we've seen elsewhere across the world. Uh, for the most part. Um, Queensland hasn't been dealing with great numbers, but of course, measures introduced by the government um, have meant that uh, there are impacts in ways uh, that we work together. There's uh, impacts on the way in which we travel, uh, and there's the impacts on the way in which we deliver services. I think uh, councils have all been uh, very cognizant to that fact and have very much leaned and relied upon their digital. Uh, digital channels being effective in terms of uh, communicating key messages uh, back to their residents. Um, It's been vital in terms of uh, the notion of channel shift and providing more services online, particularly where um, face-to-face contact has been limited um, and some customer service centres have been closed down or uh, moved to an online state. Um, That means that councils have turned to ensuring that their websites are kept up to date uh, that services are moved online um, and that all websites uh, remain uh, available. So it's had a it's had a it's had a key focus, and it's definitely reinforced that the work in which the LGAQ has been doing to support members with their uh, digital connectivity and their uh, communication with their residents has been uh, very much, uh, I guess, tested for the positive part uh, and remained um, remain to provide services in a way that. Uh, we've been able to respond to those needs and those needs have changed over over the last uh, six to eight months as well. So um, it is still a moving feast, but definitely councils um, have leaned heavily on uh, on their on their digital services to be uh, to be readily available um, and, and provided uh, with up to date information which is which reaches those people um, in all parts of the state. And have you seen much of a um, channel shift? For example, when we've been when we've been speaking to others for this this very podcast, we've been talking a little bit about mm. how it's been uh, there's been quite a big channel shift through necessity because there's been no other way in some cases for for residents to interact with the council. It's simply people whether um, people could not get in to man the phones, and obviously not having drop-in centres. Um, in some cases, it's been the only way to access quite important services, and therefore. It's kind of been forced the channel shift to, to to a huge degree. Have you have you seen that? Yeah, I, I, I we have, and it's um, I think very much early on with the measures um, introduced around um, going into lockdown here in Queensland in March. Uh, you saw we saw you know large portions of the local government workforce needing to work from home. So those traditional custom service outlets, uh, those traditional functions, which maybe over the counter services were. Uh, were just strictly not available. Um, so in regards to that, what we saw was um, councils having to move uh, more of those services online, uh, responses to those inquiries moved online um, and facilitating more of their community engagement online as well. So absolutely, I think we've seen um, I think we've seen not only them be necessary, but probably increasingly more beneficial and useful for, uh, I guess, council residents to access services 
uh, in a time and manner in which they they would with um, other services which they engage with. So operating more um, like consumers would with a with a large retailer um, or let's say a bank. Um, I think those expectations have definitely been met, um, and they'll continue to uh, to remain now. And I think uh, providing services in a channel of choice is, is ultimately important. Um, but I think. COVID-19 has been a real catalyst for some organisations to start moving more in that direction. Um, and definitely what we're seeing is uh, councils being very receptive and, and, and members of the public being receptive to, to services moving to that online space. Yeah. And have you, have you noticed any, any of those services that have been particularly affected? I'm thinking here, for example, in the early days, business grants was a huge one for for local authorities? I think from a compliance perspective um, and our rates charge perspective, we've seen some, we've seen councils be really, um, be quite bold in that regard. Um, our financial year uh, runs from, uh, from July to June each year. So councils have just brought down their budgets. And what we're seeing uh, from a large number of councils is um, hardship arrangements being extended uh, to all manner of things, so not just rates being issued uh, to residents, but looking at um, hardship arrangements around uh, residential property through to uh, council contractors um, making payments. Uh, we've seen a huge uptake in terms of um, looking at leasing arrangements that are managed by local government and um, kind of hardship arrangements be uh, put into effect um, in regards to that. Uh, uh, we've seen uh, things like food businesses, cafes, takeaways, all these licensed businesses that have applied mm. for permits or, 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 or things like that uh, really needing to move into the online space. And um, also across uh, some of our more rural and remote uh, council areas uh, who operate caravan parks and camping grounds, um, swimming pools and things like that, uh, we've seen um, that some of the uh, kind of membership and licensing arrangements and permits required for those types of services um, also move online, uh, which has been really heavily facilitated by uh, council staff who've been working potentially remotely, uh, but still having people travel through their communities and accessing those 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 council services. So it, it has been interesting. Um, it's affected councils all differently. Um, you know, you've got things like libraries where councils are now looking at, well, should we have... Uh, should we be looking at more at, at an improved and enhanced digitised um, production of library assets? And some councils are doing that really, really well. Um, so, and then there's other traditional services, which uh, for the most part have traditionally been over-the-counter services. They're now starting to see the value and looking at those moving more into an online space as well. So it'll be about what does that mean for the longer term? Um, but I think covid has been a catalyst for some of that innovation and, and, and change of thinking in regards to, to service delivery. Great. And I, and I was reading that the uh, LGAQ sort of keeps its members updated with the latest information from Queensland Health. And then like, presumably the, the councils have to get that information out, um, which which seems you know particularly important. If we talk about the, the, the council websites and that being a, a way of getting content out there, being able to have a system that you update quickly and, you know, you can act on rather than needing people to go in and, you know, make uh, sophisticated coding changes and things like that. How important has that been in getting information out there, do you think? Hugely important. And 
we've been in a fortunate position where LGAQ, uh, the organisation that it is, uh, and the direct interface that we have with the Queensland government is generally made aware of certain things earlier than than most. Uh, very early on, we developed a COVID nineteen widget, uh, which we could deploy across all of our galaxies. Um, technically, that's technically speaking. Essentially, what that meant was that. Um, information that came from our health authority, uh, chief health officer, uh, could be uh, updated within that channel um, and within that widget and then deployed uh, to more than 40 local government uh, websites across across the state. So in terms of mixed messages um, and removing that sort of issue, we were able to do that in a way where the right information was being communicated very early on and that we had the ability to change that uh, and ensure that we had this seamless and very easy to deploy a mechanism for getting the right proper information to 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 communities. Um, you know, and you're looking at something millions of hits across those local government websites each day, and the fact that we were able to uh, not only have Queensland government information, but councils could then supplement localized information to appear through that through that widget as well. Um, and we saw uptake of that widget being extremely high across our uh, Queensland councils. That that is fantastic, really, isn't it? The uh, being able to do that and do it do it quickly and and uh, get reach that many people, like you say, with a with a unified message. You just think about everyone having to interpret it. Otherwise, if, if those forty councils had to interpret it and then decide what they put up and how they put it up and how quickly. I think early on as well, there was the the. The frequency of information was so high that within minutes and hours, uh, the, the information surrounding uh, public space, gatherings, uh, workplaces that were allowed to remain open, uh, who were considered critical workers, who were not, how events should be handled. Um, there was a lot of information to take in um, and a lot to be across. Um, and I suppose with the amount of information and the frequency in which it changed, we thought it was probably best that we utilise not only uh, technology to try and ensure that uh, there could be a reliance on us to provide the right information that councils didn't need to be, we didn't need to have hundreds of people across the state working on keeping that information up to date. We could have uh, the LGAQ here keeping that message tight and keeping that message up to date and councils could get on with the job with managing key requests from their, from their communities. Another, something else I wanted to ask, and, and the LGAQ has spoken about this uh, when it's been at Radio Academies, for example, and the, the sort of so- focus on the serving complex demographics in, in communications. And it's, you know, you've always stressed the, the importance of not overlooking, you know, disadvantaged segments, for, mm. for example. And I think I wanted to ask you about that because it seems, you know, even more so important when, uh, you know, a disaster hits or or something, um, you know, like the the pandemic strikes. It seems even more important. Yeah, I think it. I think it's definitely uh, shone a light on um, digital connectivity more broadly um, in this country. Uh, you can talk about the digital divide. It still does exist. We do have, for the most part, connectivity is is good in Queensland, but if you are in a rural or remote part of the state, um, you can still struggle in some some areas to have the connectivity that you require. Um, And that means um, by virtue of that, um, other things, 
suffer as a result of that. So digital literacy, um, the ability to communicate online, all those things that we associate with the digital divide become extremely prevalent. Um, so for the LGAQ, it really means that, um, again, and for our members, the advocacy around digital connectivity, um, digital service delivery becomes really, really important. How do we look to have more of an even playing field, uh, particularly around connectivity, which is you know, ultimately you know, a basic human right now, but we still have uh, in some parts of the state areas um, which don't have you know, 4G, even 4G coverage, um, you know, when we move more into online service delivery and living more of our lives um, um, through the internet, then you need to have that connectivity there. And I think uh, in terms of uh, ensuring that um, that is overcome, it's very much a part of the LGAQ's advocacy agenda in terms of ensuring that um, every Queenslander has the connectivity they require. But look, it's been, it's been difficult. That's not to say that even in areas where um, connectivity is strong, um, accessibility um, uh, and the need to provide services online will be uh, will not be everyone's choice. They will miss uh, those traditional services. But I think it's it's been difficult, um, but outreach has been extremely important. And I think councils have done a really good uh, job here in Queensland to um, be proactive, um, directly outreach to those who've traditionally engaged with services uh, through traditional methods um, to try and ensure that they are captured as part of um, councils building um, what we call COVID response and COVID uh, uh, long-term COVID response plans, which will be which which encapsulate everything from rate relief through to um, social inclusion. Uh, so councils are very much getting on the front foot and trying to ensure that those people that are often considered marginalised or disadvantaged, um, or, or those hidden people within their communities, are, are very much taken care of, and that um, community organisations are being deployed and community services and council uh, custom service centres are reaching out to those particular people and ensuring that um, that they're getting the assistance that they require. Do you think Australia is, in, in general, is particularly good at handling what we, what you know, disasters as it were, um, you know, whether it be uh, fires uh, or whatnot, you, you sometimes, you know, see, see this... Uh, preparedness by Australia to handle things that perhaps isn't always the case everywhere else. Is that is that fair or is that, uh, you know, just, I don't know, uh, completely wrong? Yeah, I think, I, think, I think it is fair. We're, we're, uh, we're kind of equipped to deal with, uh, with all sorts of natural disasters. We can have uh, each year and particularly in summer, um, we're prone to cyclones in far north Queensland uh, last year, we saw devastating bushfires affect uh, a huge amount of the country um, and, and definitely large parts of Queensland. Uh, we've had floods um, and we've had drought for close to 10 years in many communities as well. Uh, local government here in Queensland um, uh, is responsible um, through the state for local disaster management coordination. Uh, the mayors are generally the chair of the local disaster management group as it stands, and um, COVID was treated very similar to um, how a cyclone or a bushfire would be dealt with. So those local disaster management groups were established. Um, they looked at the information. They looked at the way in which they needed to manage the situation locally. Um, but we're very much 
also responsible for enacting the measures that were, were dictated by the Premier and by the state government. So I think by that arrangement, uh, councils here in Queensland were, or we had a model and we had a structure that's that's that works. Yeah. Um, it relies not only on leadership at a local level, but um, coordinating all sorts of um, agencies and uh, stakeholders to ensure that um, communities are, are safe during those times. Um, and they take a real view of um, being prepared for the event, dealing with the event and then recovering from the event. And I think for the most part, um, that model has has served itself well in terms of COVID-19 um, preparedness, um, experience and recovery. And we're still seeing councils, obviously, um, kind of at a um, at a stage, mostly just at a uh, at a state now where they're monitoring things. But uh, there's very few um, local disaster management groups at this moment, due to the low number of cases activated. Um, but they can be deployed very, very quickly, and that can change as a result of um, how the situation uh, may evolve or change, you know, overnight. And we saw in Victoria how things change very, very quickly from having what was viewed to be, you know, low to no uh, community transmission through to uh, a high a high degree of community transmission. So, yeah, in, in a nutshell, I think we're quite a resilient bunch, um, but we're also, well, we're, we've got a good system in place um, and we've got the ability to convene those local disaster management groups in a way to deal with um, a large number of different types of disasters and, and COVID was very much managed uh, from March through to later this year um, in a way where those those LDMGs were, were relied upon uh, to provide information, guidance, um, and obviously protect the, the communities that they serve. The LGAQ clearly still has a very important role in helping communities sort of remain uh, vigilant in it's sort of still a volatile situation as, as we as we've spoken about. Um, but it's also, I understand, involved in providing support through the through the recovery stages. And I know we, we touched on this at the beginning, the sort of economic um, recovery and whatnot. How how involved is the LGAQ in that? In the sort of what what comes next, I guess, the recovery recovery stage at these uh, local authorities. Yeah. So the LGAQ has two uh, very important responsibilities around helping communities remain vigilant regarding the COVID nineteen situation. We have uh, we have a disaster management uh, team here uh, within the LGAQ. Um, that team or a representative from that team. Um, is pretty much across what happens at Queensland State Disaster uh, Disaster Centre, which is uh, based not too far from LG House. Uh, probably more importantly, though, the LGAQ uh, through either our CEO Greg Hallam or um, or a relevant proxy actually sits on what's known to be uh, the Queensland Disaster Management Committee, which is uh, a group chaired by the Premier of the state. And the LGAQ um, very much is uh, aware of matters which are impacting Queensland communities um, as they're announced and as response efforts and as uh, matters relating to all government agencies are communicated. The LGAQ um, is also uh, within those conversations. So that's an important role that we play and that means that we can disseminate information um, and matters of importance to Queensland communities can be disseminated uh, directly from the LGAQ and we act as a bit of a conduit between 
uh, the state uh, and councils in that regard. Um, a number of other things that we've done recently is that the LGAQ has actually been successful in um, securing some funding as a bit of an economic stimulus package to local governments. So uh, working on behalf of the sector, uh, we advocated for more than uh, $400 million to be directed to uh, to local government to um, essentially deliver pro, uh, shovel-ready projects, uh, which would in turn keep uh, local economies sustained. And um, we've seen that uh, supported here uh, in terms of having a number of projects that have been kick-started, ensuring that people within certain communities um, can keep can keep moving and be sustained and um, parts of the economy which potentially would have struggled um, have been able to uh, remain intact um, and ensuring that local jobs are protected and ensuring that um, uh, these communities continue to thrive uh, during a pandemic has been has been absolutely critical. So um, they're probably two key examples of where the LGAQ has played a role and will continue to play a role in terms of ensuring that councils are kept up to date with developments um, through those arrangements in place and, and looking to ensure that um, if there's any sort of economic recovery plan, that councils are very much at the centre of um, of that of that work as well. And you mentioned there some of the um, that the funding that'll be able to help projects. Um, have you got any examples of what kind of areas you think that'll be that'll be really useful for? I think what we're seeing is um, a lot of infrastructure and um, projects surrounding uh, community uh, kind of community assets continue to um, uh, remain. Uh, in place. I, I mean, one of the most important points to make is that for many rural and remote communities, local government is the largest employer yeah. in that particular part uh, or in that in that part of part of the state. Um, you know, we have forty thousand people in Queensland employed directly through local government. Uh, we then have contractors um, and numerous uh, local businesses that win contracts. Uh, through local government. So in order to continue to progress key projects locally means that um, not only do employees directly employed by the local government remain in a job, but those local businesses um, such as uh, trade and construction firms um, also remain to to win business from uh, win business locally and uh, and ensure that they keep um, they keep uh, their businesses afloat. Um, and that they continue to deliver works locally, which keeps people employed uh, and keeps other parts of the economy ticking ticking over. If people are working, um, then other jobs uh, are sustained and created as well. Well, thank you so much for your for taking the time to chat for this uh, this episode. I just wanted to ask whether there's anything you'd like to add, really, before before we wrap up. Anything I haven't asked, but might be worth mentioning. I think in the I think for the most part. Um, what we've seen is is very much people start to think about the way in which they live more broadly now. Um, I don't know about you, but um, here there's been a lot of questions around the future of work from uh, from uh, where you go to work. Um, you know, there's been a heavy or there's been a rise in terms of working from home arrangements due to that obviously being um, implemented and enforced in some, some parts of the world. But I think by... By choice as well, people are starting to think about where they work and how they work. And big questions will be raised around uh, the future of work and how we as teams um, 
co-locate and if we do co-locate. Um, and I suppose from from our perspective, it's really interesting to watch those um, those traditional structures be be challenged and yeah. um, we consider how, in fact, we we will work, live and interact with each other if, um, with the future of work potentially changing so dramatically, which lends itself to, I suppose, um, we are more digitally connected than what, we, what we've ever been. So working remotely is, is not something that's difficult to do. Um, therefore, um, we can really question whether or not those traditional structures uh, remain to be to be valid in, in 2020. And I guess um, in all things, um, I, I guess through all kind of disasters and, and things, um, what we've seen, it does, it does mean that there is this innovation bend as well. Um, and that people will find new ways of doing things and particularly um, and, and potentially better ways of doing things. And I think that's really conversely to what we're talking about, how, how uh, terrible COVID is, and there's no doubt about that. I think there's some serious questions and some, some things to be excited around the innovation streak that might, um, that might be um, another consequence of, of living through COVID-19. A massive thank you to Brett for taking the time to speak to me. It's greatly appreciated. If you haven't already, please check out the COVID-19 community toolbox by heading to jadu.net slash library slash toolbox. That's all for now. Thank you for listening to this series and please stay subscribed and we'll keep you informed as to what comes next.